Rhonda, it's that time of year again. Can you guess what I'm so excited about? I don't know about you, but I'm excited about pumpkin spice lattes at Starbucks. Mm, no. No? No, no, no. Uh, let me think. You are up. Yeah, yeah. How about leaf peeping on the Blue Ridge Parkway? No, not that either. Oh, okay. What about, oh, supply chain. How about ordering all your Christmas gifts online to avoid all those shipping delays? Well, that is a good idea. I've been hearing about it on the news, but sadly, no. Okay, okay, I'm done. I'm done with your silly guessing game. What are you so excited about, David? It's the launch of the third year of our online lectionary group, of course. Yes, 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 of course it is. I'm excited about that, too. In less than a month, we'll be gathering around the lectionary texts every Tuesday morning via Zoom with our friends. That's right. We'll all engage in sacred readings of the texts, offer our theological reflections, and join in conversations about potential preaching angles. Can you believe this is our third year facilitating this group together? And I love the relationships that have developed as we've moved through the lectionary year together. Yeah, me too. And registration's now open. So if there are any interested preachers who are listening in today, where can they go to find out more? They can go to pinlead.com. That's P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com. Uh, <clears throat> hover over the four leaders at the top right-hand corner and then click on lectionary group. Hey, Rhonda, I'm going to go straight to the rep website and get myself registered. Uh, right after I get my pumpkin spice latte and maybe cruise the Blue Ridge Parkway a while and then order all my Christmas gifts online. <laughs> well, David, you might want to get that registration done first. Um, listen, I can't wait to get another lectionary year started. Me too. Welcome back to Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm Rhonda Blevins. I'm the pastor of Chapel by the Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida. And I'm David Brown. I'm a Pinnacle Associate, and I'm also the pastor at the Welcome Table in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Happy Thanksgiving to all the pastors out there. I, I hope you'll enjoy some good time with friends or family, maybe get a little break. Yeah, you know, it's getting into that time of year. Advent is on the way, and so you kind of want to come up for air for a second before we dive into to all of that holiday season and um, everything that goes with it. And Black Friday is coming, so this is the perfect time to talk about capitalism. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about capitalism in church. Um, I guess we're going to find out, right? So Let's um, give it a go. All right, this episode, we're tackling the courageous conversation of capitalism, and maybe it's more courageous than some others that we've had. Our guest today is Reverend Eric Minton. David, you got to interview Eric. Would you introduce our guest to the listeners today? Yeah, so Eric lives in eastern Tennessee, and that's really where he grew up. I grew up in an evangelical tradition sort of a dually aligned congregation, Baptist. Some folks listening in on this will know what those dually aligned churches uh, look like and feel like. Um, he went to Fuller Seminary. He got an MDiv there and his spouse got a counseling degree. And so she's been a licensed family and marriage therapist for quite a while. 
Um, Eric served several churches, then was was sort of drawn away from that and into the counseling world himself. So Eric and his wife uh, operate a counseling center together. Eric has been doing a lot of thinking around the church and capitalism. Really more than that, what does living in an age of hyper-capitalism do to us as individuals? Um, how does it? How does our well-being suffer? Um, what are the impacts of capitalism on us as individuals? And then in a broader uh, scale, uh, institutions, including the church. So I, I think the conversation is going to be really interesting. And uh, we'll maybe decide how taboo a topic this is for churches. Our next episode will be an interview with Reverend Dr. Leah Shade, who's a professor at Lexington Theological Seminary. And uh, you'll hear her say in that episode that in a study she did with people in the pews, she asked the question, which of these topics is most taboo, uh, topics you don't want to hear or are too political from the pulpit? And guess which topic was number one among them? So, uh, you know, I mean, if this is the episode you're talking about it in, I'm going to guess capitalism. <laughs> you got it. You got it. It's capitalism. So it really is, to use your word uh, that you used before we started uh, recording, uh, it is fraught. How do we how do we even begin to engage this topic uh, with people in our pews? Yeah, there are so many aspects of our life in general and our church life in particular that's just infused with the economic situation in which we live. And I I think it's almost hard to separate that when we talk about the church as an organization or the church as uh, an an instrument of God's work in the world. The idea that in the United States, that American Christianity and American capitalism have sort of grown up together, uh, I'm not sure how easy it is to separate or to critique one or the other. Well, I look forward to your interview with Reverend Eric Mitten. Well, I'm here with Eric Minton and looking forward to this conversation about capitalism and the courageous ways that pastors might engage this conversation uh, in in their congregations. But uh, before we get to that, Eric, if you would just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey into church ministry and then um, into family therapy. Yeah, yeah. What a great uh, title <laughs> for that. It's like, oh, we're going to talk about capitalism today. So yeah, no, that's uh, always a real bummer at dinner parties and now podcasts. But anyway, uh, I'm Eric um, and I... Gosh, for as long as I could remember about late high school, I wanted to be a pastor. And I grew up uh, in a what I later came to find out was a duly aligned Southern Baptist, cooperative Baptist fellowship uh, church in East Tennessee and Knoxville. And uh, the best way I know to describe that were uh, every participant at the church mostly was Republican. And then all of our ministers were Democrats and no one ever talked about this. Um, it was kind of how we got around those things. And I never understood that as being any different than uh, that's just the church that I grew up with. And that's the experience that I had coming into things. And so then upon going to college at uh, the University of Tennessee and then meeting some other people who were Baptist and then learning about their experiences and then thinking I had a much different experience with Baptist life than they did. And so that, uh, David, was probably part of my process of uh, coming into that experience. My parents were divorced when I was three. Uh, so I grew up 
uh, as a kid where I was the only son of my parents divorced and they both remarried and subsequently had two of their own kids with each member of the family. And uh, growing up as a kid, I always just had a different last name and was like seven years older than everybody else in the minivan. So it was, it was somewhat of a, an alienated experience for me. And then uh, going to church was always a bit fraught uh, there for a while. I, I didn't enjoy the experience. Uh, you know, I haven't met a ton of middle schoolers that are like, gosh, I love church. Um, but right. then upon, yeah, I mean, you, maybe you've been familiar with this experience. Um, but then meeting my youth pastor, his name was Cal and, uh, he was this like six foot 10 Floridian. I mean, he was like six, six, but the, literally the tallest man I had ever met in my life at that point and very, very tan. Uh, but he, I remember he gave his, uh, what we called a testimony at church one night. And it was about how, when he was an undergrad, he lived in a trailer behind an auto parts store where he worked and sold drugs out of the trailer. And I thought immediately, this man is just deeply fascinating. And I was like, my man Cal has seen some things. And so right. that, at that point, yeah, I was like, okay. Uh, and so I started hanging out with him with great regularity. Um, he was kind of the first person to ever introduce me to Christianity that I thought was more interesting than playing tic-tac-toe on the bulletin for you know, Sunday morning worship. And uh, through that process, uh, gave me just a ton of opportunity to hang out with students in this Wednesday night program that they ran at the church that had a bunch of kids from our community that weren't members of our, our congregation and really just introduced me to what it might be like to be a pastor. And I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. And so then I went to undergrad with that idea in mind. And then my wife and I got married and we went to seminary at Fuller Seminary in, in Pasadena, California, where they had a APA School of Psychology, and my wife enrolled in that, and she was the first one of us to, to get a, a marriage and family therapy degree there, and I got a master's in divinity, and had aspirations to just be a pastor, and she would be the therapist, and so uh, then I ended up getting a gig at a church uh, back home, about, you know, 30 minutes from where I grew up, and was inevitably a, a youth minister and college pastor, because if you are under 30, and you've never worked at a church, you're a youth pastor, right? That's right, and that's good. And especially if you're six, six and tan from Florida, but I guess uh, you had to know kind of that's different. You can see me on zoom and I definitely have the body and face for zoom, uh, but for a podcast, I mean, uh, so yeah, no one else has to see this, but uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not six, six nor tan, but I will say David uh, doing therapy with people on telehealth and some folks I have only seen on telehealth. They have no idea how big I am. So I usually like to mess with them a little bit and say like, oh, I'm, I played semi-pro basketball in Europe for a while. So I'm actually six, seven, That's uh, great. but no, I'm, I'm like five, 10 and a half. So anyway, um, yeah, going there and then coming into that church, it, like it really, it was a similar style church that I grew up with. It was a little bit more progressive. If one can say that about a Baptist church in East Tennessee, um, but they were moderates. They were only CBF affiliated. And uh, I, gosh, I loved my time there. But over the course of that time, I became increasingly depressed. Uh, and I, I felt like I had this kind of internal struggle with what the church would perceive in me in terms of what they desired from me as a pastor, what I needed to be talking about in terms of things none of us know for sure, uh, the ways that I would describe things, the ways that I would introduce their own kids or students in their church to faith or the way of Jesus. Um, all of these things were constantly points of conversation or contention or confusion uh, for people that I interacted with. And I think over time that started wearing on me a bit. And uh, the pastoral staff itself was somewhat in flux while I worked there for several years. I was ended up being there for four years. And uh, one of the things that I think just became increasingly 
uncomfortable for me was this idea of the fact that they could change my health insurance or they could fiddle with our pay if they were disappointed with a sermon. Sure. And, um, you know, and then I became fond of uh, introducing myself as a professional Christian because I, I was in fact paid to pray. And that became, that made people very uncomfortable. And then I said, well, then why have you changed my health insurance four times in the four years that I've been here? Uh, why have I not received a cost of living increase? Why are, if I, if I had children, uh, because my wife was pregnant at the, the last year I worked at a church and they told me flat out, that if she had been pregnant when I had been hired, I would have been paid $5,000 more. Um, so really? these sorts of, yeah. So these sorts of things then ended up determining the scope of what I was even allowed to do as a pastor. And I became very, very uncomfortable with the ways in which um, pastoral life was taking shape for me. Uh, and I didn't expect that to really happen. And so then I was seeing the work that my wife was getting to do as a marriage and family therapist and the way that she was getting to intera interact with people and their the lived experience, the way that she was getting to talk about faith with people, if that were an important part of their story, the way that she was getting to even reconfigure or work with people in terms of how their entire families understood who they are or, or how they function in the world. And I just became more and more interested in doing that. Um, and, and she's paid to do it. And so it's not like there's this some sort of like uh, altruistic motive on our parts. I, yeah, I understand that part. But I think for me, it was one of those things where if I would directly comment upon that at the church, people became very angry with me. Um, and uh, I would have questions like, well, you know, why is it that is it always a spiritual calling for a pastor to leave one congregation and go to a bigger one? Um, right. They're always called right. to these places. Right. Uh, and I was like, you know, they're never called to go to a smaller church where they make less money. <laughs> so um, for me, these sorts of arrangements are were the kind of subtext underneath all that. And I just, over time, felt this pressure to grow the church, to grow the youth group, to grow all of these things. And it was always a numerical metric by which I was held uh, a standard uh, against. So yeah, I, I became really depressed, uh, pretty anxious about that, uh, was pretty unhappy. And uh, in 2015, uh, my son was, uh, he was born in April, 2015. I uh, decided I was gonna go back to school to be a therapist, which I highly recommend that. If you've just had a baby, uh, it's your first one and you're really anxious, Seems like perfect and, timing, right? Perfect timing. Yeah, you should, just, you know, add something else to your plate, right? So yeah, you should go to experience. you should go to graduate school. Yeah, you should go to graduate school then, and then you should quit your job that you've wanted to do for about fifteen years, uh, about three months later, and then you should start working at Trader Joe's, uh, which is what I did. Uh, so so I, I can't recommend more of those experiences, and I, and I, it's good to do those as quickly as possible. So it's perfect. like you know your yeah, baby is born. Yeah, go to school, uh, quit your job, uh, and then work in a completely different industry altogether. Um, so yeah, no, that's so that was me. And then over that time, I, I stayed in school. I had several different internships, uh, and now I am a marriage and family therapist along with my wife, and uh, we own a practice here in Knoxville where we work with individuals, couples, and whole families. And uh, we've been doing that together now for a few years. That's great. That's great. I appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing part of that backstory and the journey and being just uh, 
straightforward with some of the experiences that I think many of us have had as paid professional ministers. And, uh, you know, or I love the word professional Christians, uh, people that are paid to pray. And um, I, I think that really leads into this conversation, this topic of, of capitalism, uh, leads into this topic of how is the church sort of enmeshed in the economic system uh, of our country. Um, and, you know, I, I just wonder, as you talked through that story, it seems like those questions were, uh, you know, drawn out because of these experiences you were having directly in the local congregation. And when you went to talk about kind of the, the financial reality of being uh, the leader of a congregation and getting paid to do that, um, that was an uncomfortable kind of thing for a lot of people. And I think that's why we have included capitalism as a courageous conversation. I, I wonder, it, was it some of that experience that you had early in ministry, uh, paid professional church ministry, or was it something else that kind of began to fuel your interest or spark your uh, imagination around the intersection of church and capitalism or Christianity and capitalism? Yeah, I know, David, that's a really good question. Um, and you know, even as a therapist, I think that there are a multitudinous uh, kind of overlapping influences that end up shaping a lot of our development and decision-making as people. But yet one of the first realizations uh, that was really pressing for me was uh, when I was in my, my first placement as a, a pastor and uh, having a personnel committee evaluation where they had said, you know, what we want to do is essentially we're going to give a survey to everyone in the congregation and they're going to anonymously comment on any number of things that they like, dislike about you. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take in all this, that information and we're going to just form it together into a Word document that then we just give to you and read aloud to you. That seems uh, helpful. Dave. That seems really helpful <laughs> to me, you know, helpful feedback. Yeah, yeah, and, oh, yeah, certainly. And uh, I think I remember uh, commenting to them. Uh, I've never been very tactful, I think. Uh, but I remember commenting them in the meeting that this sounds like Facebook, but live. Uh, and um, they were kind of essentially saying, well, well, yeah, this is what it is. But with Facebook, so, at least yeah. there's a name attached. Yeah, right. So the people have to leave, uh, you know, before they burn down your house, they have to let you know who did it. But anyway, in this process, one of the things that came up, though, was the fact that they were describing some things that perhaps they were frustrated about or were wishing were happening uh, differently than kind of what I was doing. And, and all of the commentary would be about the numeric amount of teenagers that are at this congregation, as if I, I was withholding them um, or was needing to, you know, there's always something more that I should be doing to kind of lure these teenagers in. And then if I would say, yeah, I know that I, I, I get that. I think there are some structural realities that we're facing here that uh, are, are difficult to understand. I think that uh, in this community, there was most of the students um, that were kind of in our church congregation were in this high performing, it was a public high school, but it had been sort of gerrymandered to where the ways in which the high school would draw from these communities, it, it definitely looked like somebody had just drawn the line around what are the best neighborhoods in this area and can we can we go oh, we'll grab this cul-de-sac over here but this one i don't know about that neighborhood so then this these neighborhoods are all funneling into again what is a, a really dynamite school system here in the state of tennessee and 
these kids were showing up to youth group and they were just cripplingly anxious. Uh, you know, they, they were talking, I mean, we would be going, we'd be on a lock-in because that's mandatory. Uh, yep. Is that you just, yeah, you just put kids together. They won't come to church, but you just like trap them in one for all night and then tell them don't make any mistakes with each other at nighttime. Also, there's these tired adults that are grouchy with you. And then should we do a Bible study? That seems like a good idea to do a Bible. So let's do that at 2 a.m. Uh, so we're, we're doing one of these things uh, as one does. And these kids are talking about biology the whole time. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I, on that unit test, no, I made this grade. And no, 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 but this, but this, this test, I made this grade. Or they're talking about, you know, AP, AP test prep classes that they're taking. And I remember asking them, you guys are, this is the worst small talk. What are you doing? Why are you not talking about like punching each other in the face or something more interesting, like music that makes your parents uncomfortable? But they were, they were talking about their grade performance. And then I remember having a, a small group meeting with some younger students, one of whom was in middle school at the time, and uh, him telling me that they had had a school assembly earlier that day where they had had to uh, essentially predict the course of their life. So they had to come up with a life plan, like their profession, they had to put together like a mild resume, uh, you know, how much money they wanted to earn, all of these sorts of things, like kind of hammered out. And this 12 year old is telling me, he's like, Eric, I couldn't come up with anything. And I was having the hardest time not sobbing openly uh, in this assembly meeting because I thought if I can't come up with a life plan now, when is that going to happen? I'm going to be a total failure. And I remember thinking, what the hell are we doing right. to these kids? And right. then the questions from the congregation are never, what are we doing here? The questions of the congregation are, why are they not doing more? Why are they not coming to this thing? Why are they not coming to this thing? And why aren't you doing more? And right. I remember thinking like, if we as a faith-based congregation can't ask questions about quote unquote, the world and its influences on our students' interpersonal well-being and the ways in which all of us are driving them to do more and more and more, then what are we doing here? Um, and so then I think at that point, that just turned into a snowball of reading more and more uh, into what academic expectations have been like for high school kids uh, in America over the past 30 years, uh, what um, mental health well-being metrics have looked like since the 1950s. Uh, and me, I've always been a bookish person. And so uh, that was just like pulling a loose thread on a sweater that ended up unraveling by the end of it. Um, and then understanding, oh, like, you know, when these students go to a mental health care provider, what strategies are they met with? And it's, oh, there's a popular strategy called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it says primarily, we're not going to talk about your past and we're not going to talk about your future. We're only going to talk about the illogical cognitions that drive some of your unhelpful behaviors. Mm -hmm. And one of the metrics that we use to why this is such popular uh, strategy with especially teenagers for one because they're concrete thinkers developmentally but two because we get the highest health insurance reimbursement rates for employing these strategies because it's time limited it's what we call uh, scientifically provable uh, in terms of its effectiveness and uh, it, it prevents students from negatively impacting their futures mm. so if you huh. can hear that even our churches our mental health yeah. industry in lots of ways um, our healthcare industries uh, all of these things kind of work in conjunction to communicate to students somewhat directly what you do, what you earn, 
and what your future looks like is the most important thing. So if you're suffering now, that's completely irrelevant to us because you need to be able to produce. Right. And it seems like that same sort of anxiety and, um, you know, whether it's low grade or whether it's acute, you know, that same sort of anxiety that the teenagers that you were dealing with, um, uh, interacting with were experiencing. I'm imagining that was also going on in the lives of their parents, also going on in the lives of their pastors, also going on in the lives of every person they bump up against, right? And, and so you've got individuals and systems and institutions that are functioning um, in this environment where all the metrics are about dollars and for churches, who, how do we fill the pews? You know, how do we, um, you know, increase our budget next year? Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you've got all of those metrics of the economic system that are bringing to bear on individual lives, but also on the success of the body of Christ. No, and you're, you're nailing it, David. And I think one of the things that um, I commented upon recently, I wrote a piece for Baptist News uh, Global. I do that from time to time. Yeah. Um, but it was in direct uh, relationship to when I would go to these conferences uh, with pastors from either more conservative or more progressive uh, ends of the Baptist spectrum. Uh, the, the conversations typically revolved around the same things, which were, uh, what are the wealthiest people in our congregations willing to do in terms of their belief systems, in terms of their Christian practice, in terms of their congregational decision-making, because that dictates the kind of pastor I can be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so meeting with a progressive pastor of a progressive denomination or a progressive uh, individual congregation and him telling me the only reason we're open and affirming is because the people who write the biggest checks are okay with it. And, you know, hearing the same kind of thing from someone who's in a more conservative den uh, denomination and conservative congregation of saying, the only reason if people found out what I believed about the end of things or what I believe about women in ministry or what I believe about LGBTQ community, um, I'll lose my job, which is in turn, I lose my retirement, which is in turn, I lose my son's access to health insurance. And so I can't. And when those sorts of influences determine the scope and shape of our Christian practice, uh, we're dealing with something else than a yeah. theological discourse. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. So how do you, if, if you were just trying to think about how could pastors and Christians, church leaders, how could, could people who care about the church uh, but maybe just care about, uh, you know, living a faithful life in the world. How would we begin some conversations around these topics in our congregations? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. When I'm seeing someone individually for psychotherapy, one of the first tasks that I usually ask them, but after the first session and before the second one, is to just notice things. Uh, it's to return to their lives and not feel this impetus or pressure to suddenly change everything about what they're doing. It's to return to where they are. And, and I think Rabbi Lawrence Kushner puts it best with eyes remade for wonder. Mm, yes. and so it's this idea. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. You're familiar with yeah, this. It's a great he's, line. He's a genius. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's no, right. it's, it, I, it gives me cold chills every time. Yeah. So, uh, but it's this idea of returning to wherever you are and looking at it as if for the first time. And, you know, the early Christians, I think called it being born again. Maybe yeah, there, there you go, something like that. 
Yeah, you're right. I'm not so sure we use it in the same way anymore, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, no, it's more of a tax exempt status at this point, right? But that's a little bit too on the nose. But anyway, um, you know, it's it's asking people, you know, just enter back into whatever you were doing beforehand, but just ask more questions about it. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, this might look like um, someone returning to their congregation and looking at their congregation's budget documents. And instead of asking questions, did we balance the budget? Right. It's how did we balance the budget? Mm -hmm. Who who is balancing the budget? Mm -hmm. What is the budget paying for? Right. What do these things mean? You know, if you ask congregations what their goal or mission statement is, I think it would be something along the lines of, I want to be a force for Jesus Christ in the world. Oh, okay. Um, he was a first century rabbi who was killed in his early 30s by the Roman Empire. Um, how does one go about doing that in the 21st right. century during uh, an on again, off again global pandemic in a tax exempt nonprofit institution that's you know crippled by years of inactivity and sociocultural diminishment? Okay, yeah, <laughs> knock me out. And it's, well, we, we have a fellowship meal on Wednesday nights and uh, we got Sunday school and we have a worship service. And sometimes, you know, a few times a year, we, uh, we pack backpacks and we we host a Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, Eric. I mean, pretty clearly, this is what we do. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just pretty straightforward, just as the Lord intended. So, but one of those things that I, I think uh, Kushner is inviting us to do is to to see all of it for the first time, and to come at it uh, with fresh eyes, and just simply ask the question: Why is our senior pastor making four times the amount of money our associate minister is, and they have comparable educational levels? Mm -hmm. Why are our support staffs not making a living wage when McDonald's is paying people $14 an hour? Mm -hmm. Why are our childcare workers, if we have paid childcare workers, if we're lucky right. enough to have those, right. why are those people so often underpaid and devalued? Why are associate ministers of whom I was one, so I'm a little bit biased, of course, but why are associate ministers who work with congregation members who either do not contribute to the budget or do not contribute high amounts of money to the budget so frequently paid at that level? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think these are some of the questions we're asking is that if there is this huge wage disparity between the top of our church budget and the bottom of our church budget, and we're saying, I'd like to call into question the values of the world for Jesus Christ. Okay, great. Why is your pastor making $200,000 as, as he was in some congregations that I've been a part of, and you're paying your custodial staff $8 an hour? Right, right. And, and I mean, I think you, you take one baby step beyond that, and it's, it's why are we organized as churches to, to, to the place where our personnel budget is 50, 60, 70% of yeah. the amount of money that we pull together? Um, you know, maybe there's something there as well. Well, and it's it's a small potatoes version of, um, and I'm a college football fan, not by choice, but by uh, just. I, I mean, a, if you live in if you live outside of Knoxville, how can you not be right? My word, uh, you know, we call it being a vol for life here in East Tennessee, but I usually add without possibility for parole. Uh, but anyway, uh, one of the things we're finding is that you know it's it's a terrible institution. Our football team has been bad for oh, two decades. And uh, we, we have one of the highest recruiting budgets and one of the, I mean, like, I think we're paying more coaches to not coach our football team than to coach them. And so, you know, even now they're, they're raising money again to, to rebuild this student athlete, uh, you know, Thunderdome of, of success. Mm -hmm. And we, we built a, a fresh one probably 10 years ago. 
And so, you know, we can all kind of guffaw at these sorts of things and think, what, what are we doing here? This makes absolutely no sense. When the highest paid state employee of our, of here in the state of Tennessee is somebody that can't properly conjugate subject verb agreement, right. like, what are we doing? Uh, but I think at the same time, if we look at the way churches make decisions, it seems similarly. It's, the, it's a morality of affordability. So it's this idea of like, well, can our church budget support the building of a church addition? Mm -hmm. Can we, should we build a new sanctuary? And usually the question is because we want to attract people to come here. That's right. right? We'd exactly. like to recruit. We'd like to get better at recruiting. Uh, and then it's like, oh, well, if we want to be successful, we need a, a more effective coach, right? Somebody that's a proven winner. And well, winner, I mean, like when, working at a church where he saw some, some growth, either he's at a mid-major school where it's a smaller budget, a smaller staff, but he won a lot of games. Or he's at a big established church and we're just going to have to pay him way more to come here and try to resurrect us like he did this other place. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, the same thing with the, the, the personnel budget and the building budget. I mean, it's, it's you've got to have this sports complex to recruit the kids and you've got to have, you know, the, the, the coaches who you're paying to do it. And, um, you know, it seems to me that churches would talk a lot about God's provision for us, you know, or that God will give us what we need to do the things we're called to do. But when it comes down to actually practicing that in an institutional way, it doesn't often happen. I mean, I think we're locked in the same sort of scarcity debates as, uh, you know, most institutions around us. And, and I think if, if we were to point toward our theology, we would talk about a God of abundance, a God who provides for God's people. And so I wonder if, if there's language or if there are specific places in our tradition, scripture, uh, theology that you would point to or go to as opportunities to, to reimagine or to put fresh eyes on what we're doing economically in our churches. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> shameless plug. I, I wrote a book and it's coming out in May of next year. Yep. And uh, it's, it's cheerily about uh, <laughs> capitalism and what we're talking about today. Yeah. I love um, the title, the title, you know, yeah. it's, it's not you, it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's perfect. It's everything. Yeah, see, it, it's the old breakup line, except the That's other right. way. Oh yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's not you. It's me. It's like, it's not you, but it's the crumbling of our democracy. It's not you, but it's this hyper-capitalist uh, economic system that destroys everything. Uh, it's, it's really, it's a cherry beach read is what I'm saying. That's right. I could tell. Um, <laughs> but anyway, one of the things that I, I think uh, I'm, I'm attempting to do there is to uh, simply shed light on the first part of that process, which is just seeing things for what they are uh, and talking directly about them. Uh, and the second thing is recognizing that we come from a long line, if we are part of the Christian or the Judeo-Christian tradition, of people asking hard questions about the ways in which economic engines drive most of our decision making. Even if we're not talking about 21st century hypercapitalism in the American style, we're still talking about ancient Near Eastern practices where 95% of the populace was in poverty. Mm -hmm. So then what does that mean for a God who identifies with 95% of this population and not the 5% that's making most of the decisions? Um, but to put an even finer point on it, one of the influences for the book was uh, Latin American theologian and uh, I'm sure a fan of the podcast here, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez. Absolutely. Uh, and, I'm, yeah, sure. Yeah, long I'm sure. Long time listener. Long time listener. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he wrote this, this uh, a little, uh, what I think is uh, just one of the most brilliant books I've read on the subject 
but it's called On Job, God Talking the Suffering of the Innocent. And mm. if you went to seminary uh, and you were introduced to Gutierrez's uh, concept of the God of the oppressed or mm -hmm. a, a theology of liberation, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that he tries to do in this conversation around Job is essentially reimagine the book of Job as the source material for asking one question of the ancient is Israelite population. And that's, can you serve God even if it doesn't pay you? Huh. And so he's simply saying, is, can faith be what he calls disinterested? And again, not from that standpoint of I'm a middle schooler on the back row uh, thinking about lots of other things like Sonic the Hedgehog right. for me. Um, but he's asking, can one believe in God in a self-disinterested way? Mm -hmm. And it, so without, he, benefit, yeah, without benefit, without direct benefit to myself. Yes, correct. And so he's saying that the Job is this long kind of morality play around this concept that there is this guy who obviously believes in God. And the Satan even points this out that the Job believes in God because it works for him, right? I right. mean, he's he's blessed. Yeah. He's he's got a kitchen wrapped in shiplap. He's uh, he bought into a gentrified neighborhood before it gentrified. I mean, you know, he's got everything he needs here. And Satan's like, uh, I mean, I, he'd be an idiot not to believe in God, right? Yeah. And so then he's like, but what if he, what if he didn't have all those things? What would he do? And so right. we see a lot of really, really fascinating questions sort of developed out of that framework for Gutierrez. And I think one of the things that I'm attempting to do in the book is not only begin from the source material of pay attention to what you're actually seeing. And I start with kids mm -hmm. and I kind of extrapolate out from that of saying, like, just, just pay attention to what you're seeing in the world. And then as we move along, pay attention to what you're seeing on the internet with uh, our use of technology, pay attention to what you're seeing in your faith tradition. If you come out of a, a Christian tradition or in terms of me, a particularly evangelical version of that Christian tradition, pay attention to what you're seeing in our economic relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. Because I think if we're looking for some sort of tie that binds underneath all that, David, what we're finding is that self-interest mm -hmm. is the governing principle of most of our decision-making as Americans, particularly as American Christians. And then we've baptized this sort of divine relationship with self-interest by placing a God atop of what is essentially a multi-level marketing system ruled by self-interest. I mean, who among us, if, if you grew up evangelical, I remember I took a, a busload of white teenagers from cul-de-sacs to a Christian summer camp where a man in ripped jeans uh, yelled at us in a small college auditorium that God loves God's glory more than he loves any of us. Mm, yeah, that God is passionately in pursuit of God's own glory. And right. God utilizes all of us, God's children, to give God to give glory. God glory. Right, right. Yeah. And, and if uh, a dad came into my therapy office and told me the only reason I had kids was so they would make me look good. There's a reason that his kids are in my therapy office in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So when we have an entire system that posits a God at the top of that system who is divinely self-interested, how can we not but be his children? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think if you look down through the, the history of organized Christianity, I mean, that's how we look at clergy. You know, that's how it, it is that multi-tiered marketing kind of idea you know, God at the top, and then here's the hierarchy. And then, you know, if, 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 if we're the, the people who are down here buying into that system, then that's how we ought to be with our children, or that's how we ought to, that's the, the sort of, um, you, you know, uh, the, the image of God that we put at the top, 
and then we say we're created in God's image. And so we sort of pursue that, live it out Mm -hmm. and look where it's, look, look where we are uh, because of it. Well, and I think one of the things, and the reason I start with kids is, is not just because that's where a lot of my academic and theological training was with, but it was in, they will tell you the truth. And that's usually what we would say from a family systems perspective is that the symptom bearer in that case is typically the children. And so when the children are acting out or calling you names in Target when you won't upgrade their phone or doing something along these lines, they're telling you the truth about what actually runs your family system. Right. And so we would call them symptoms incarnate. Hmm. And so for us, I think if we look sociologically in, in the American tradition and we're seeing kids who right now the resting anxiety rate for American adolescents is higher than what we were hospitalizing kids for in the 1950s. So what is an average baseline for American teenagers now is what if a kid had presented with that in the 1950s, they would have been hospitalized. Wow. So that's, that's normal for us, right? And so then if we're saying they're bearing the symptoms of what we would, I would argue is a hyperventilating economic system ruled by an anxious, self-interested deity at the top of it. And American Christians have become totally comfortable in creating a cottage industry meant to just essentially do what is theological cognitive behavioral therapy mm. with everyone mm. of saying, are, are you sad about this? Are you feeling frustrated? Are you experiencing doubt in this system that you're living with? Well, you know what the problem is? It's you. It's you. You're not yeah. working hard enough. It's because you don't actually believe enough. It's because you haven't read this book over here. It's because you're not actually wow. doing this other thing over here. If you know, if you worked harder and you took your faith more seriously, right. then you know things would work out for you. So basically, you're saying that uh, mm-hmm. we ought to, on top of the anxiety, we ought to layer on a few uh, measures of shame and guilt and here, here's one thing that I, and, and I want to kind of, kind of maybe pull this toward how, how could we as congregations, how could we as pastors, I know noticing, uh, maybe telling the truth about what we're experiencing in the world, yeah. what can help the pain or the anxiety or the not okayness become a catalyst for something new, different, better, more faithful. Oh yeah. That's yeah. No. And I, I'm, I'm very comfortable in just complaining about things and letting other people fix it for me. Uh, that's kind of my MO. Uh, well, you know, right? know. That's, that's why I'm a therapist. That's, that's right. There you go. It's like, uh, I think there's an old therapy joke about how many uh, patients does it take to screw in a light bulb? And it's like, Oh, well, it depends on who really wants to screw in the light bulb. Does the light bulb itself want to be screwed in? You know? Yeah. And so anyway, it's not, I'm remembering it poorly, so that's why it's not very funny. But aside from that, um, no, I, I do think that there is this thing that we're doing counterintuitively by noticing and listening to our pain for a second mm-hmm. yeah. and, and valuing it as, an, as a necessary critique for what we're going through. And one of the things that I think is why it's important to do that is because so often we're talked out of that experience. Like the minute we air any sort of grievance with what's going on around us and we do it in an inappropriate way, someone inevitably meets us with, have you, have you thought of talking to somebody about that? Mm. As in like somebody else that isn't me. Right. Not me. Maybe. Right. I'm right here yeah. in front of you. Yeah. No, please don't talk to me about this. I mean, I mean, how often do we see that in prayer, prayer meetings with people? It's like someone saying pretty clearly, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. And I, I know everyone in that room just takes up a collection offering right then and pays the rent. But instead it's, oh, well, let's take that to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Have you thought right. about talking to somebody? Maybe your I'm, heavenly father? I know some community resources that might be able to well, help with can, that, right? Can I point you in that direction? Yeah, right. Um, and so I think one of the things is, is not only noticing and listening to our own pain and the pain of other people, but doing that collectively with each other. Because so often this kind of hyper-catapulist, self-interested 
kind of framework completely turns it into what I think Noam Chomsky once called the atomization of society. Mm, so mm -hmm. it's this complete dysregulation of society or community groups or congregations. Mm -hmm. And it, it harkens back to what, what Thatcher was telling us in the 70s, which was uh, there aren't, there is no such thing as a society. There are only individuals. Individuals, yeah, yeah. Right? So then when churches are saying, oh, she's right. And so the best we can do is just minister to individuals by getting them back to work so that they don't negatively impact their futures, either AE, IE, heaven. So mm -hmm. don't believe the wrong things because you'll go to hell and, instead of heaven, or don't do the wrong things because you will be economically impacted. Like you mm -hmm. won't be successful. You won't be uh, a, a good family person. You won't be, uh, your kids won't be successful. You'll have all these kind of negative impacts. And so church's whole move is to get people back to work and to get them focused on their futures, which is mm -hmm. either heaven or what their job is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so for us, I think one of the things that we do, not just by noticing and listening and kind of sharing this collective pain together, is then to actually organize against it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, I think one of the most important things that churches can offer people is the regular practice of Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And I mean that differently than just like churches are like, okay, good, we got this. Okay, yeah, so I'm going to just do exactly what I was already doing, right? And just prioritize people doing that instead of other right. things on, on Sunday. Like, yeah, let's schedule okay. lots of yeah. things on Sunday. Let's schedule yeah. <laughs> lots of things on Sunday and then we'll be practicing Sabbath, right? Yeah, they're like, oh, good. We need to get kids out of semi-pro youth sports. Like we've always complained about it right, right. back into church. Right, um, right. So no, it, it, it isn't that. It, it's this idea of giving people language and tools and or collective experiences with rest mm -hmm. and not yeah. with this kind of internalized collective busyness where yeah. I, your choices are I can either feel guilty because I'm not working in the economy more effectively and I'm not right. earning enough for my family or I'm not working in God's economy effectively enough and I'm right. not advocating for his glory. Right. And so right. those are the two options that people are given right now in America and, and especially if they're American Christians. And so for us, we need what Jesus and lots of other people called a third option here, yeah, which is people enter into our communities and they experience collective acts of liberative rest. Mm-hmm. And there's a woman that I, I, her name's Trisha Hershey, and she is, uh, she calls herself the Nap Bishop, which I think is amazing. And she has this, uh, and ironically enough, it's an internet brand. And so I, you know, I, I do hate calling it that. I'm sure she would too, but her work is, is transformative for me. Uh, but it's called the Nap Ministry. And uh, she, as a black woman and a black theologian, uh, advocates for people who are in situations of profound distress and oppression, i.e. Black and African Americans here uh, in our society, to engage in resistant rest. Mm. So she wow. schedules and sets up these napping, these napping installations, like it's an art project, and has people nap in public as a way of reclaiming, in almost like a reparative fashion, the rest that was stolen from them by an economy built on their labor. Right. And wow. so one of the things that she's regularly inviting people into is this Sabbath expression of, if you don't give me time off, I will take it for myself as my God-given right. Yeah. And that for me is like when she gives us that kind of permission and that kind of language, it completely inverts this concept of Sabbath away from just one more hyper-capitalist expression of self-care or religiosity or right. something like that, where I'm just being more productive, but for some other God. Right. Right. Or even, does, it, does that make sense? David? Yeah. Or, or even productive for my own well-being. you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's like self-interested. It's going to yeah, get me the things I want. Yeah, exactly. So in that scenario, you know, Sabbath, truth, true Sabbath is really an act of resistance. Oh, and I think that that's, 
if we're looking at its the seedbed of its its kind of filtration throughout the Israelite community, it was a, a group of people coming out of slavery, right? And right. They're, they're, they come to this new mountain and they're dealing with this new kind of God. And right. this God is making a list of things that are going to define this community. And it's like, hey, don't kill each other. Hey, don't like steal from each other. And also, weirdly enough, everyone should have a day off. Right. And, and right. you're thinking like when he's when you're bulleting out the things that define a community and you're like, oh, yeah, don't kill it. That, that seems airtight. Yeah, please take, uh, you know, like don't steal from one another. OK, yeah, right. that's great. That's great. Right. Have this internal like structure, like where kids honor their parents. Super. That's right. great. Everyone gets a day off. Wait, what? You're like, where did that come from? Right. That does. Yeah. And so, you know, and it is this idea where you, if you're in Egypt, your whole body is about productivity. Right. And so then you're, you're exiting, you're in this wilderness space where there's not a hierarchy, where there isn't a temple, there isn't a kingdom, there isn't anything. It's just a mountain mm -hmm. and wasteland. And this right. God says, everybody gets a day off. Right. This is the reordering of society uh, in, in relation to this, to this new God. Yeah. And that's and, a key and, component and, of oh, it. Yeah. Sabbath, rest, and, and modeled after what this God did in the beginning when God was creating all of this masterpiece now we're you know, that, David. Yeah. yeah so we, we we got a place to start right and it's even yeah. in the bible <sighs> who, who knew and you know one of the things that i think is so important about this process and i'm showing my cards because i'm a therapist is that if we can reorient as a faith tradition our relationship with our uh, and uh, forgive my uh, misogyny here but our heavenly father and i'm going to use that term on purpose mm -hmm because I, I think it mirrors the relationships oftentimes that we have with our own parents. And it's when what we would call in my therapeutic tradition, destructively entitled, which mm. uh, for my therapy tradition, what we would say is that humans enter the world being owed love and trustworthiness from the people who decided to give birth to them. Mm. That humans didn't decide to enter the world. They were chosen by other people, whether on purpose or on accident. And it's those people who gave birth to them's responsibility to raise them altruistically with gifts of love and trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. And that in this system, the way that those people who have been given birth pay these parents back isn't by giving them what they needed, which is like, you know, praise and glory and honor for being such great parents. It's when these kids give birth to their own children or raise weird dogs or adopt right. kids or, you know, like when right. they make their own families, that they altruistically give those families love and trustworthiness without expectation for repayment. Right. Right. And so each generation gets what they need, not because they're demanding it from people who come after them, but because they're giving it and right. then they're giving it and they're giving it. And so if right. we're thinking about it from a, it inverts this multi-level marketing thing where there's this divine being at the top, kind of sort of hoovering up or vacuuming up all of the glory and love and trustworthiness to himself. Mm -hmm. It inverts that where yeah. the vacuum then gets blown out and it's God saying like, no, I'll die. Like right. if, I, if my kids need to be set right. No, I'll, I'll take that. Yep. Or like we get the picture of Jesus of saying like, oh, you know, even though you sold me out for money and political reasons, I'll mm -hmm. still serve yep. wine. I'll still bring bread with you. I will take upon myself the risk of dying so that my kids can be set right. Because that's what parents do. Yeah. And so when we come out of a tradition that completely inverts that idea of saying that our God is self-disinterested, our God always dies first. Our God always sacrifices God's self first. And so will we. And so then instead of being destructively entitled by taking things from people who don't owe them to us, like glory from God's children. And instead, what we find is that when we give those things to our, each other and to ourselves, like without expectation for repayment in a self-disinterested fashion, 
we, and, and this is what uh, Kushner would also call tikkun olam, we repair the world. Yeah, right, sure. I, I think we've, we've, we've kind of come around and may, maybe we've landed on a few theological resources um, that, uh, that, that we could, could bring into play here. And I hope that as pastors listen to this, not only are they going to be spurred to ask a few questions or maybe dive a little deeper into their own assumptions or do a little reading into some of these resources that you've mentioned. And I'll probably get you maybe in an email to, to maybe oh, type, yeah. a few, type a few of those out and we'll add them to the yeah, show notes. Certainly. Um, yeah. I, I guess, you know, just to kind of kind of pull things together, is there a word of hopefulness or encouragement that you would want to give to pastors who are struggling in this space where churches, along with every other institution in mm -hmm. American life, has been shaped by an increasingly uh, more hyper capitalism. Is there encouragement or a word of hope that you would want to give to pastors as they're uh, listening in? No, Ursula K. Le Guin, um, and she received one of these awards for just being a, a genius. And one of her comments in receiving one of these awards, it, it sticks with me almost every day. And it says uh, something along the lines, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but that capitalism seems inescapable. Mm -hmm. But so did one day the divine right of kings. Huh. Any, any human power can be changed as long as it is resisted. And so I think for us, one of the things that sticks with me about her comments are that um, we come from a tradition where what brings about the recreation of the world, what brings about resurrection is, isn't a God that sacrifices everything and everyone in the name of his glory, but a God who dies to bring something brand new into the world. Yeah. And so if our churches and our community groups and our small groups are not willing to entertain their own self-disinterested end for the flourishing of something brand new, then I would argue they're not terribly Christian, or at least in the orthodox sense that I was introduced to. Yeah. And so one of those things that I would say that if I'm being more concrete about how this might work, it's asking pretty direct questions about if I'm worried about our budget solvency and I'm still not willing to pay our lowest paid workers a living wage, then perhaps we need to stop referring to ourselves as a Christian institution because we're not willing to entertain our own budgetary end for the sake of someone else's flourishing. Mm -hmm. Or if we're not willing to reconfigure the ways in which we practice our faith together around the ideas of who gets to make decisions here. Is it always based upon their income level and the amount of money they contribute to this church? Because if that is the case, we're not actually a Christian organization. We're a capitalist one pretending to be Christians. And so I think for us, it's, it's about trying to move into this idea of if, if resurrection is real for us and it becomes from a place of God being willing to die first, then we have to do the same thing. And we have to be willing to entertain our own end for just a moment to then think through, can we do something more interesting than live forever? Yeah. Um, and I think for us, like, that's the kind of question I want pastors to ask is not, I need you to entertain the end of your pastoral career so that something new can be brought into question. But when you're telling me your pastoral career is controlled by what you say about things none of us know for sure, so that you can continue to make ends meet or pay your mortgage or pay off your student loan debt or to get your son's health insurance deductible net, then I would say we have to ask some hard questions about what you're actually doing here. And not because it's not worth it and not because you're not worth it and not because you shouldn't be paid, but because you should be. But you should also have the freedom to ask hard questions about what those strings are that are attached to your pay. Uh, and I would say that if, 
any data into the, the ways in which pastors are so frequently fleeing the clergy, quitting their jobs, feeling burned out, uh, taking their own lives and, and, and tragic instances, uh, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we all doing here? And why are we perpetuating this system? Yeah. And, and, and when we come together as clergy groups, we have to do more to support one another and to give one another resources into how can we do something different with ourselves and our time other than eat each other for the few remaining table scraps of this capitalist empire that we're all kind of comfortable operating underneath. It's, you know, it's just a lot of, I see it all the time, young clergy members just arguing with each other about who's going to get the next head pastor job at the failing institution next. And for me, it's there are way more interesting questions that you can ask. So I would say if you're looking for concrete resources, there is Jubilee Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina, uh, where Kevin Georges is the uh, lead pastor there. They have a, a, like a great pastoral staff that I'm not remembering uh, all of their names, but uh, they do a perfect job of asking really, really hard questions about how does capitalism control and kind of influence the ways that we make decisions. And so they have a Jubilee Fund where they work really hard as a congregation to pay off people's student loan debt and medical debt or any other debt that's crippling them and keeping them from living a flourishing life. They start uh, education services for people in their congregations who are looking for financial literacy that isn't Dave Ramsey putting money in envelopes so that he can buy a bigger boat. It's asking harder questions about, hey, how do we understand a, a predatory work environment where people exploit our labor, where people exploit our lack of resources, where people exploit our sense of calling? How do we organize together collectively to have labor unions, to have fair bargaining agreements, to ask our employers to pay us a living wage? They're asking really, really hard questions and they're doing it within the context of Christianity. There's another church in Arkansas that my friend Matt Duvall is um, a pastor of and they have started similar lines of thinking around what if we did something more interesting with our church budget rather than just setting up our endowment to live forever? Yeah. What if we actually helped other people live right now? Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. they're also creating this jubilee system where they're trying to pay off congregants' debt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's such an interesting way to think about why we exist, to say, what if we, as individuals or churches, rather than scrapping and doing everything we possibly can to preserve the institution, we're willing to sort of give it away, give ourselves away. What if the, the church that was willing to die as a congregation was yeah. the one that really uh, produced a flourishing community around it? And uh, there's just something very uh, Jesus about that. And uh, that's, that's probably a great place to, to, to sort of say, blessings to these pastors who are out there in the world who are trying to ask the tough questions who are inviting their congregation members to to think about the way they live in inside of this economic situation in a countercultural in a, in a different uh, in a gospel-centered sort of way so uh, I, I really appreciate this conversation i think there are going to be some good things in it for pastors and i appreciate you being a part of the podcast eric yeah thanks david Thanks so much to Eric Menton for coming on the pod and sharing his insights with our community. You can find Eric on Twitter or at his website, ericmenton.me. Look for his forthcoming book, It's Not You, It's Everything, which will be released in May 2022. You can learn more about Pinnacle Leadership Associates at pinlead.com. That's P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com. And thanks so much to all of you who are listening, especially all of you pastors, navigating this ever-changing world, loving and caring for your people, 
trying to engage in conversations that really matter. We see you. We know the struggle. May God give us all what we need to do the things God calls us to do. We'll be back with another Courageous Conversation next week in the Pastor Life podcast feed. See you then.